0: Hi friends, thank you for tuning in to the City Church Lenten Podcast series we are calling Again and Again, God's Sacred Refrain. During this series, we will emphasize that God who meets us, comes to us, never gives up on us, and is for us again and again. During Lent, we are also being invited into the spiritual practice of walking with Jonathan Stalls of Intrinsic Paths. Each week, Jonathan will be sharing a podcast, video, and list of resources to help you on your journey of walking through Lent. You can find out more at citychurchsf.org walking. Again, thank you for listening to this series. And if you would like to support the work of City Church, you can do so by visiting our website at citychurchsf.org give. Finally, we would love to see you at our weekly live stream service at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or Twitch. Grace and peace to you in this season of Lent.
1: scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle.
2: Okay, I am so excited to be here today with my really good friend, Kelly, and I'm excited to be a part of City Church San Francisco. I have a lot of love in my heart for this church, <laughs> I love what you all are doing, um, and I get to introduce a friend of mine to you all. So this is Kelly Nikondeha, a writer, theologian, oh, yeah. wonderful person, one of my best friends. We talk every day about the Bible and what's going on in the world. So I, feel, I just thought it's only fitting that I bring you with me to have this conversation today, Kelly. And well, thanks. So I'm
3: so excited. I'm excited to be yeah. in San Francisco somehow,
2: <laughs> somehow.
3: <laughs> and, to, yeah. and to be in conversation with you and, um, and this community. I'm excited.
2: Yeah, so I'm coming uh, from Portland, Oregon. And Kelly, you just landed in Arizona after. Correct. Well, you can tell them where you've been.
3: I was uh, in Burundi, which is in East Africa. So my husband and I do some development work there and have our our kids are there. And um, so I just completed 36 hours in transit um, and I'm glad to be back in Arizona.
2: I know I got some Wi-Fi. So we're so excited today to jump into a passage. Um, I know Pastor Fred had reached out to me and said, Danielle, would you want to talk a little bit on, uh, you know, the passage where Jesus overturns the tables in the temple. And I, you know, I think he knows a little bit about me and my Enneagram one heart and my Mm. heart for justice. And, you know, so of course, this passage is really impactful to me. But um, the more I thought about it, the more I realized, like, there's a lot to unpack in that story that I don't think I understand, right. And as someone who's more prone to activism, right, I just see this, like, I'm writing a book on Dorothy Day right now. And she was writing in her journals about How amazing it was that Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine at a party. And then the next thing he did was his first act of direct action, of direct Mm. nonviolent resistance, right? And I'm like, that's awesome. And I've never really considered it that way. But I know you're someone who has studied uh, the context of some of these stories a lot more than I have. So I wondered if you could just unpack for us what was going on here and i know you kind of wanted to start off by talking about who jesus was and his orientation to resistance as a part of his life sure
3: sure so when we approach this passage i think there are three things right up front that are important to remember Um, and the first is who jesus is Um, seems really basic but also really important Uh, jesus obviously was this well obvious to us who have read these gospels that Jesus is the son of God, the God who loves justice and asks us to join in maintaining justice. That is uh, the father of of Jesus. But his mother, right, Mary, or she would have been known as Miriam of Nazareth. Miriam is her namesake. And of course, we've heard of other Miriam's before. But she comes from Nazareth, which is part of Galilee. And Galilee was actually known as a hotbed of resistance in the second temple period, which is when this story takes place. So uh, Mary grows up in this environment. Jesus is raised in this environment. We shouldn't at all be surprised that Mary sings the Magnificat about grand reversals and dethroning the wealthy and the rich and the the powerful. when Jesus was just a holy seed in her belly uh, because this was the world that she lived in and the world that Jesus grew up in, where they were known for, uh, uh, I think uh, somebody once said there was a lot of messianic energy in Galilee, lots going on, pushing against um, empires um, and also pushing against Judeans, to be quite frankly. There was a, a bit of a rough relationship between the north where Galilee and Nazareth were down south where Judea and and Jerusalem were. So um, these were people very well acquainted with um, resistance movements, weekly protests, direct actions, banditry, uh, kind of the Robin Hood style of banditry where they would steal from the rich to give to the poor in their villages. This is the the world Jesus grew up in. Um, And I think that's important to remember because direct action would not have been unfamiliar to Jesus or his family or his fellow disciples, quite frankly. Um, And I also think we need to remember that Jesus was poor. He grew up um, as a peasant. He grew up um, dark skin, thick Galilean accent, which would have told people that he was from up country, that he was not well educated, you know, so he had things going against him. He grew up on the hard side of town, we might say. Um, so this is Jesus who's gonna walk into the temple with all of this history, um, the son of God and the son of Mary. But he walks into the temple. And I think of the temple as a holy place. I think of the temple as a, as a religious place. I think of courts and sanctuaries and altars and incense. But, in the second temple period, the temple was more than that. It had also become um, a place where politics happened. It had also become a place where economics happened. It was almost like a a bit of the Wall Street phenomenon right there in the temple precincts, that we have a time in history where Herod was bringing in his own high priests from abroad, as more political appointments than religious ones. And we had uh, the temple uh, actually had archives. So taxes, tithes, um, land documents, IOUs, loan documents, foreclosure documents, all of that was housed in the temple precinct. And so when you think of the temple at this time, you have to recognize it had all collapsed, politics, economics, and religion had all collapsed into this one place. So it was a symbol of much more than just religious fervor. And so Jesus, the poor, disenfranchised, uh, thickly accented you know, uh, man from a restive area up north, walks into the temple knowing full well what it represented, especially as it colluded with the empire of the day, Rome and made life hard for him and his family and his neighbors. Um, And he walked into the temple. And the third piece I think is important to recognize is at the very beginning of this passage, we heard that this happened at Passover. And what do we celebrate? What do our Jewish friends celebrate at Passover? It's the angel of death passing over their homes as they were being liberated from the Pharaoh of their day from the regime of their day, from the slavery and the quote, the um, brick quotas um, and the misery of their day. And that was a time that was also known to be, there was a lot of agitation in Jerusalem around Passover and um, the Roman, I think it was Pilate and, and those before him would send in legions of Roman soldiers right before Passover, a show of force to make sure that the Jewish people in the city knew, don't try anything. Don't think that you're going to re relive the glory days of um, being emancipated from Pharaoh. This Passover, we are here. We are in charge. Um, and so there was also, you know, lots of people, lots of uh, Romans there, ready to keep the Jews in place, lest their liberative memories and imaginations were sparked during passover so all of this is in the text before we even read what jesus did
2: wow okay so i want to stop you right there and just say i love all this context it's so much more complicated than i think i ever heard it growing up and i want to make it clear before we talk any more about this the way i heard this story was like jesus is angry at what's happening in the temple, because this story is in all four Gospels, right? There's other accounts in mm-hmm. other Gospels that makes it a little bit more clear about, you know, uh, they've turned my house of prayer into a, a den of robbers, right, in Mark and right. and all of that. Um, and Jesus makes a whip and he drives out everybody. And I think I viewed it through a, a sort of like anti-Semitic lens, right? Like Jesus right. is saying the way that the Jewish people do it is all wrong. And I'm here to like make it all right. And that's not what we're saying at all in this conversation. And, and you've already brought out, it's much more complex than that. But um, since I think most people are familiar with just the mechanics of it, of Jesus takes a whip, he overturns temples, <laughs> he scatters the money, he disrupts what's happening in the right. temple. And just like one or two sentences, can you tell us what was going on in those, in that place of commerce? Like what was happening? What, sure. what is he interrupting here?
3: Well, when when pilgrims like Jesus and others would have come into the temple during Passover, uh, they would have needed to change from their regional coins and and money. They would have needed to change money, much like we do when we go to a foreign country. So they'd go to a money changer, change their coins to the, you know, was it the shekel? Whatever was being used in the temple at that time. And then they would go and buy whatever sacrifice, whatever animal they could afford um, in order to then offer that sacrifice. Um, so this is what was happening. Now, I think it's very, as you said, a lot of times people say, Oh, well, they were actually, you know, Jesus was upset at the, the sacrificial system. Mm-hmm. But this is actually not a text about anything being wrong with the sacrifice. It was about the the mechanics. If you read the text, it's all about selling money changers, business, coins. Uh, tables with inventory, the the list of all the animals. It's all about the marketplace and the business that's happening there. And I think we see, like we're seeing the tip of the iceberg, right? We're seeing um, the basic stuff that's happening for somebody like Jesus to come in, buy a pigeon, and be able to offer his sacrifice. That's not the part that Jesus has a problem with. I think Jesus, well, there might have been some unbalanced scales. There might, right? there might have been some of that going on. But really, I think Jesus is pointing to the bigger thing, which is, you know, when he says in the passage, gosh, you don't, um, don't turn this house into a house of trade. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about insider trading, because I think Jesus is saying, yeah, there's what you all see here but we all know there's something more going on with the high priests and the political functionaries and the people who are making big deals to buy that tract of property and to evict those people so that we can get that property that we want. There was much more going on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And I think what Jesus was saying is here's what you can see, but we all know that behind that is the, you know, it's the white collar criminals. It's the, it's the bigger stuff. That's actually much more dangerous and I think that that's where Jesus was actually pointing when he came in. He's like, I'm gonna turn over what you can see, but I uh, we all know that this is just the tip of the iceberg.
2: Yeah, and the bigger issue is one of religion, right? Being mm-hmm. in bed with power, right? Yep. And the all yep. that can come out of that. And I think that really sets this parable in our yes. context as people in the United States, people mm-hmm. coming from evangelicalism and we see how our religion married with power, all all the people that can get hurt, right? When we go full after that. So thank you for bringing that Correct. up to us. Now you wanted to talk a little bit about how the disciples in the John passage kind of sum up what Jesus <laughs> did. Um, and you yeah. told me something that was really fascinating about what they were quoting. So can you talk about that really quick?
3: Sure. So I love how you tell me to be really quick, Danielle. <laughs> so after, after this happens, we hear all the, you know, the action shots of the text. Then we hear, uh, you know, John tells us that the disciples remembered or the disciples made this connection. Of course, he's one of the disciples, right? He makes this connection and says that, um, what, how does it actually read here? That remembered that uh, it was written that he had, he was, that he, the prophet at the time, was consumed with zeal for the Lord's house, that that's what that he and the other disciples discerned, oh, this is what zeal for the Lord's house looks like. But they heard about that from Psalm 69. And Psalm 69 is one of the imprecatory Psalms. These are Psalms that are white, hot with rage. Psalm 69 is infamous for the way in which the psalmist rails at his enemies and wishes them harm. Um, so when we say imprecatory, imprecatory just means it's a, it's a psalm that evoke, invokes um, kind of calamity or curses or judgment upon God's enemies or your enemies, and they don't hold back. It's pretty. Some of these are pretty graphic, and yet this is the way that they understood what they witnessed in real time. That as Jesus was tying the whip and turning over the tables and tossing the coins, oh, this is what zeal for God's house looks like. Mm-hmm. They understood that God, that Jesus's righteous anger at what was happening between religion and economy and and how that was impinging upon the poorest people in that place. They recognized this is this is what, that you know, this is that kind yeah. of anger, and that we have that in our prayer book. So it's actually, it's a holy kind of anger, it's a holy kind of action, but that's how they saw it in the moment.
2: Wow. And I think that's so important for us to talk about, because I don't know about you, but we didn't really talk about imprecatory psalms a whole lot Mm -hmm. growing up in my church. I'm a pastor's kid. You know what I mean? We didn't sing songs of lament. We did not pray imprecatory psalms. And I think maybe some of us even thinking about this passage, Jesus overturning the tables, we are afraid of the anger that is portrayed in this passage. And I just love how you brought in both the truth that Jesus was familiar with the anger of protests, right? And the anger Mm -hmm. of oppressed people um, fighting for their rights and that the disciples at least were aware of anger being a part of their spiritual heritage and uh, something that Jesus was tapping into. Now, again, let's take, let's take this back to our context. Now. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think I'm alone with saying that I actually experience a lot of anger right now about the ways Christianity has aligned itself with power. And I struggle to know what to do with that anger sometimes. And so we know that this story is not exactly prescriptive, right? We're not. Right, right. uh, Right. But in some ways it does invite a response. And Mm -hmm. um, real quick before I kind of turn the question back to you, it made me think about Um, As a child of white evangelicalism, right, I've really spent the past few years struggling with um, Christian nationalism, with Trumpism, you know, all these things that all of us are probably sick of thinking about, sick of talking Hmm. about. And yet I still struggle with anger and I still struggle to know what to Mm -hmm. do with that as a Christian. And this summer, um, something kind of broke my back a little bit where there uh, is a famous worship pastor who was going around leading worship, you know, fest concerts, like with lots of people, encourage people yep. not to wear masks because his name is Sean Foyt. And he was coming to Portland. Now, Portland, of course, we've had lots of Black Lives Matter protests. We've been in the news. And he, uh, this, this worship leader was saying, you know, we're going to go to Portland and we're going to turn those riots into revivals. And he was directly talking mm-hmm. about Black Lives Matter protests. So disparaging them, saying instead, we're going to bring a bunch of Christians and sing some worship songs. And that's what God wants us to do. So me and my husband were so mad about that, along with Uh, a Mm. few other Christians, we went down and we protested a worship event in my own city. And I I had to take a step back and be like, what is happening here? Like, what is wrong with me? Like, Mm. why am I protesting a worship event right now? And my husband is like, because they're saying Black lives don't matter, right? Because they're discrediting the voices of people who Mm -hmm. are asking for justice. Like, that's why you protest. Christians, is when they are actually on the side of the oppressor, which, of course, we can argue throughout history. (laughs) That's been white evangelicalism the whole time. Some of us take longer to wake up, and I think it was just an interesting time for me to say, like, I I have a lot of anger within me, and I don't exactly know always what to do with that, Um, and this story is a really interesting one to tie us back to the Psalms, tie us back to our history, Mm -hmm. and um, something you and I have talked about before, really honoring the fact that Jesus came from communities that had to protest and had to resist. And why looking to people like that is probably what we need to do going forward. Um, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to say about that.
3: Well, I just think uh, something you and I've also mentioned before is that, uh, you know, Jesus may have done this particular direct action, you know, on his own, or maybe John was just putting the spotlight on Jesus. But Jesus acted within a community. Um, you right? He you could you can bet that there was some interesting conversation and debriefing around you know the dinner table that night as he sat with the disciples and they talked about what happened and talked about Psalm 69 and how Jesus understood it and um, are we supposed to do this in the next you know when we go up to Capernaum and go and you and you get a chance to pull out the scroll and read there are you going to do this again? I mean you I'm sure they had their community that he was a part of would have had conversations and i I think it 's interesting to think about um, how we we think about direct action and anger and lament in communal spaces as part of the way that we are faithful to the God who loves justice and has invited us to participate in it not as a solo sport but but you know as a community
2: I love that and and I think that 's really helpful for people like me, who sometimes feel the weight of the world and feel mm-hmm. the anger and injustice and want to flip over tables change it all yeah. immediately fix it all you know and that's not something within my power but you have mentioned several times to me that like these imprecatory psalms right they're supposed to be read in a service like with a whole <laughs> community of people experiencing can you imagine together Oh my gosh, I can't, I truly cannot, but the the ability to even talk about this passage I think with a church community is is pretty awesome. What we're doing right now is taking the time to say anger is real. Anger mm-hmm. at the church is real, right? Mm-hmm. And um it's not healthy to do it alone. I don't right. know, maybe that's too far of a stretch, but I think I think the you know, the biblical context is one where like, you have to do this in community. This work of Correct. anger um, has to be done in community. And you're Correct. just an expert on lament and and kind of the anger element. So I just wondered if you could just, again, real quick, I love you. I love you so much, Kelly. Um, just explain like how anger yeah. in, in lament actually helps us um, in spiritual community.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, lament is a way to process or handle our anger. Um, Our anger is well, you know, well-placed. And of course you have to remember the Jews had suffered mightily for decades, for centuries. Um, And so really we're talking about a traumatized people. Lots of anger, layers of it. And lament was the, the I want to say, in a sense, it was the salve. It was the way to voice their legitimate pain and anger at the loss that they had suffered. National loss, personal loss, communal loss, all of it. And so to lament, to be able to say before God, this is not the way it should be. Um, this isn't right. And won't anybody see and bear witness to our pain? I mean, part of what we hear see in Lamentations, right, is you know there's nobody to comfort me there's nobody to see and legitimize my pain my legitimate pain and loss Um, but that is a huge part we also have our imprecatory psalms we have our lament psalms which are meant to be the place where we voice that pain uh, and bring that anger into a kind of a transformational space
2: yeah and i just love that i think For me, lament is the foundation of learning how to um, do direct action as a person of Mm. faith, right? We need that basis of lament that we can do in community that will prepare us to do direct action. Because I kind of want to end our talk today Mm. on a practical note. I don't think you can talk about this passage without saying, um, you know, is God inviting me into some direct action? And of course, this past Mm -hmm. year has been so... um, A really interesting time for people to say, do I want to get involved in Black Lives Matter protests? Of course, we have a pandemic going on. So things are complicated for people. And um, there's many, many ways that we can be involved in, I think, Mm -hmm. interrupting some of these systems. I think about all of us who have had so many conversations with our family members, begging them to wear masks, asking them to get the vaccine telling them, please don't have your church meet right now, please. You know, all of us are doing that work of trying to sort of um, interrupt this machine that is just dehumanizing people um, Mm -hmm. and really rejecting lament. (laughs) Like we see Christians everywhere just rejecting lament and say, no, like this isn't a big deal. We want to keep going as normal. So I think there's all these things that we can do. I will say for myself as a white evangelical, I need more help to become someone who um, is able to listen to the Holy Spirit for when it's time to do direct action. And I mm-hmm. really, I really learned the past year from activists and protesters, specifically the Black Lives Matter movement here in Portland. I've learned so much from the people organizing that, and I, I look forward to that being a part of my. A spiritual faith discipleship journey, actually. I want to be more mm. like Jesus. Therefore, I'm going to keep learning from all these mutual aid organizations and these Black Lives Matter protesters in Portland. Yes. I'm excited about that. Um, because when when the time comes for me to maybe do what Jesus did, you know, I I want to be ready. But I wondered mm-hmm. if, you know, I'm Enneagram one. I'm like, rah, 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 let's do it. I wondered <laughs> if, uh, you know, you are different than me. Like, it, what, what has come up for you as far, to, as, far as like application of this passage?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that it's not actually very dissimilar from what you're saying. And that is, I have been listening much more intently to the voices from the margins with the awareness that that is where the wisdom resides, that the people who have suffered for decades or centuries under white supremacy in our country, recognize it. They know what it looks like. They know what it smells like. They know how it behaves. This is not their first time having to push against, as you said, the machinery of white supremacy. Their ancestors have done it. The ancestors before them have done it. And so this wealth of wisdom uh, resides in those communities. And I've tried to be very diligent as an Enneagram Five to take my lessons from them, to not Mm -hmm. trust and this is something I learned from due Hart, a friend of our a friend of ours, to not trust my own white sensibilities uh, because they will lie to me when it comes to white supremacy because I have a vested interest in that part of the system, like it or not. but to distrust that part of myself and trust my my friends of color who've been through this before trust them to offer their wisdom their leadership their counsel their discernment um it's gotten to the place where i actually prefer listening to uh, black pastors and preachers and um uh, scholars because i trust the wisdom they're going to give me that i need to hear so that's um as an enneagram five i'm trying to make sure that those are the voices that are shaping my imagination and uh hopefully they help me um, have eyes to see and ears to hear what the spirit is saying to the church.
2: Yeah. I love that. I love that so much. And as we wrap up today, I just wanted to again, say that one of the things that's so fascinating about this passage to me is Jesus is actually interrupting a system of commerce, right? I think you're right that Mm -hmm. he's pointing to bigger pictures, but he really does do some direct action that made people's lives harder that day. Yeah. And cause people to think. And so as we continue to see protests happening in the United States, I want us to keep that in the back of our mind. Interrupting yes. business as usual is a part of the Christian tradition. And if we don't see Christians doing yes. that in our world, but we see people who you know don't identify as Christian doing it, I still think we can see the Holy Spirit at work and learn from them. And I wanted to close yes. today with um, a quote that is really meant a lot to me by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was involved in resisting the Third Reich in Germany. And this is just really helpful for people like myself who come from a more individualistic, you know, white evangelical mindset. But he said, we are not to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice, but we are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. And that was his concept Mm. of the church. The church would just be a stick that just rammed into the wheel of injustice where people were being crushed under it. That's a mental image that just came up to me when I was reading Mm. this passage. Um, it doesn't always feel fun to be the stick, honestly, but it does interrupt the wheel and it does stop people yes. from being crushed. And so just want to yes. leave us with that. It was so great to chat with you today, Kelly. I loved it.
3: So with fun. you as well and our friends in San Francisco.